0: Before we get started, I do just want to say a huge thank you. In case you've ever given to Compass Church and you leave on a Sunday wondering, does my money do anything other than just keeping the lights on, I hope this morning really affirmed to you what we do. We are on mission, we want to make disciples, and that's what your generosity goes toward. So from the bottom of my heart, like, thank you for your generosity. On mornings like this, it's like, oh, this is why we do what we do. So a huge thank you to everyone who's, I know there's a lot of folks who have sacrificially given, and it's not lost on us, and it means a lot. I, yeah. This also goes without saying, but I am not an animal expert. I'm no Jack Hanna from The Tonight Show, or if you are raised on public television, The Krat Brothers. Ah, they're still going. I don't really know anything about animals, so please take that with a grain of salt, what I'm about to tell you. But I hear, I hear the difference between buffaloes and cows is enormous. (laughs) When there's a storm, so when you're on the range and, you know, and you can see it coming, apparently bison face the storm, and actually walk into it, where cows run from the storm and go away from it. I Actually, in the first service, someone in the first service who's from England, also not an animal expert, told me, actually, in England, cows lay down when they see storms coming, which is brilliant. (laughs) But you understand what's going on here. We see a storm coming, and I really just know this from people's tattoos. I don't, this is really, I mean, the National Bison Association did confirm this. So if you have a bison tattoo for that reason, this is why. You're in good standing. (laughs) But the the parable in that is, is very easy, it's very clear. When a storm is coming and we face it, hard as that may be, the storm loses its power. It's not there as long. It may be difficult, it's real, but there's strength in facing the storm. Where we run from the storm, we're not going to find what we're looking for. We're actually going to be in the storm much longer. Running from pain creates more pain. And then just sitting down is just a different game altogether. Today, we're going to be talking about something I so wish running from created all the solutions to. We're going to be talking about something that there's no real victory in It's not like, oh, okay. Hey, I used to struggle with this. Not anymore. Nailed it More like what we're talking about is it's like a luggage on a luggage carousel oh, Okay, it's gone. Oh, it's back and the seasons just change This morning, we're talking about the temptation we all face toward people-pleasing Well, oh, not just me, okay People-pleasing. What is people-pleasing? It's changing our behavior to receive others' approval. I don't think that you just hit an age and you stop doing this. People-pleasing, ah, there's no safe place to hide. You may be popular, you may be well-known and well-loved in our community, you've got to face that. You may be unknown. You may think you're anonymous. That does not rescue you from temptations toward people-pleasing. You might be very religious and think, well, I'm religious. I don't have any temptation toward people-pleasing. You might be irreligious and think, well, I'm irreligious. Who cares about people-pleasing? I do what I want. There's no safe place to hide from people-pleasing. There's no, like, behavior, too, that we can check off. Like, oh, this is a people-pleasing behavior. This is not. It goes deeper than that. The people who wear suits to church can be involved in people-pleasing. You can be like, hey, look how seriously I take this. And the people who wear jeans and shorts to church can be involved in people-pleasing. Thank goodness I'm not like those legalistic stuck-ups over there. It's very tricky. There's no safe place to hide, and, and there's no point in our lives where we're just like, I'm over it. It's like luggage on a carousel. It just keeps coming back. And yet, there is hope for people who struggle with the temptation of people-pleasing. There is a better way. Jesus, in the passage we're about to run into, runs into the buzzsaw of people-pleasing. He steps outside the lines and the people did not like it. And they accused him of doing something wrong. And so Jesus gives his very first sermon in the Gospel of John, which is where we're going to be this morning. He gives his very first sermon talking about, hmm, I'm not missing the point here, folks. I'm not disconnected from God. I may be upsetting the community, and that's hard, but I am not doing anything wrong. Oh. You can change your family tree if you just stand up and say that. I no longer want to do Thanksgiving where we talk news, sports, and weather. If we're going to get together, we're going to have some honest talks. And just watch what happens next. You think you don't struggle with people-pleasing? Just try to establish some boundaries. Oh, it'll come at you fast. People-pleasing is powerful. It can easily wrap its tentacles around each of our hearts, but it's ultimately rooted in fear. What will happen if I don't have my son's approval? What will happen if my spouse doesn't get what I'm doing? What will happen if my boss doesn't like what I'm doing? Fear and scarcity. I need to adjust what I think is right. I may need to find, you know, we find ourselves in wild situations, all because we're so afraid to authentically say what's in our hearts. Because of that fear of rejection, fear, it's powerful. Last week, we talked about willpower. Willpower is not going to dig us up out of this people-pleasing temptation. All right, I'm going to try really hard to not care what people think. All right, I'm going to be honest. I'm going to be authentic. I don't want to do Thanksgiving anymore. Ah! Or some of you may be sitting here thinking, this don't apply to me. I don't struggle with people-pleasing at all. I don't care what people think at all. I don't like people at all. All right, I'm a loner. I'm a wolf. That would be great if individualism was the solution to people-pleasing. But we gotta be around each other. We gotta bump shoulders. Like, you can live in a house in the woods, great, but we're relational beings. We're wired to connect. And I'll make the rules, people just keep connecting. So how are we gonna face this temptation toward people-pleasing? We can run, we can lie down, How do we face it? In the passage we're going to look at this morning, Jesus faces people pleasing. And he makes this amazing statement as he does. He says, What's motivating your people pleasing is not anything other than you don't know the love of God. Now, I saw the faces. Hang with me for a second. Do I struggle with people-pleasing? Yes. All right, we'll try it again. Do I, Craig Kidder, struggle with people-pleasing? Yes. Okay. Okay. I struggle with people-pleasing. Based on your confession of my life, I struggle with people-pleasing. Does that mean I don't know the love of God? No. No. Okay. So as we read this, I want, you to, be, I want to be really clear about this. The Bible is not written to us, but it is written for us. We get to overhear a conversation between Jesus and not Craig. All right, Jesus is not like, Craig! That was a Friday reference, if any of you... It's not a good movie. It is a great movie, but I just don't want to get in trouble, okay? I just don't want to get in trouble. You've seen it, all right? It's just, I'm going to get in trouble. People-pleasing. I'm talking about people-pleasing here. See, see, we can't escape it. It's everywhere. Where were we? I have no idea. I just totally lost my train of thought. Okay, Craig struggles with people-pleasing. Thank you. Friday, here we go. We're back. Craig struggles with people-pleasing. But Jesus does not say to Craig, the reason, Craig, you struggle with people-pleasing is because you don't have the love of God in your heart. Jesus is talking to religious leaders. Now, here's the thing. If you read all four of Jesus' spiritual biographies, there is one group of people Jesus is brutally honest with. Do you know who it is? Craig. No, it's religious leaders. It's religious leaders. Why? Because as leaders go, so go the people behind them. Jesus, as he's brutally honest with the religious people, it's motivated by love for the vulnerable, for the little guy, for the unknown people who are like, this is just who we are and what we do. And Jesus is like, this is not who we are, it's not what we do. I'm offering you something better than people-pleasing. Now Craig gets tripped up in people-pleasing. And when we do, we need to be reminded it's not us. It's not who we are. That's not how that's not our identity. See, willpower won't get us there, but identity will. So we're going to read Jesus' sermon in the Gospel of John. A couple things we need to point out before we read it. We think of court like this. That's not how Jesus thought of court. So Jesus calls a court service halfway through his sermon, and he makes himself the defendant. He's like, hey. You guys are saying I don't know God. I'll go on trial. Here we go. And he, he uses some statements that are kind of confusing. We just have to explain. He says like, hey, if what I'm saying isn't, I, I, my word, if I'm just the only one saying that my word is true, my word's not true. And we're like, what? Like what, what? Jesus says something, doesn't that make it true? The word true is not a very helpful translation there. It'd be better to say valid because he's in court. He's like, hey, my witness that I give about myself, if I'm just the one talking about myself, that's not valid, right? He's not saying it's not true. But he's saying the word for, in, in both Greek and in Hebrew, the word for true also means, like, established, firm. You can kind of see the connection there, right? If your word is true, it's, it's solid. But if someone is always twisting the truth, it's not solid. So Jesus is saying, hey, if my words are going to be valid, I need another witness, So he calls in four witnesses, calls in John the Baptist, and he says he's not a great witness because he's a person. If I'm saying I'm God, capital G-O-D, there's nobody other than me, I'm God, I need a divine witness. So he points to his miracles, his words, and scriptures. He's calling God as his witness. And in doing so, He actually flips the tables. He goes from being the defendant to being the prosecutor. And he says, and religious leaders, the reason you don't receive my message is because you're out of touch with God. And you're out of touch with God because you're so involved in people-pleasing. You like glory from each other. You like, you like, if I came to you like one of you, you would have received me. But I came to you, I'm Yahweh from the Old Testament. And you're like, "Mm, no thanks. People-pleasing causes us not to be aware of God's activity and movement. That's why it's so dangerous. We can get tangled up in that. We can miss what God is doing because we're so worried. What will others think? If I step outside the lines of my community and lose their approval, what's going to happen? Maybe you'll meet God. Maybe God colors outside the line sometimes, and maybe he's inviting you. Hey, come over here. I'm over here. God, I can't do that. What will they say? What will they think? And we miss that awareness of his presence. There is a better alternative, though. Jesus talks about that. So if you please would turn with me in your Bible. to so John chapter 5, verse 31. John five thirty-one. There is a better alternative to people-pleasing. We love, love, love the Bible around here. So if you would, please stand with me out of respect for God's word. John chapter 5, starting in verse 31. If I were to testify on my own behalf, my testimony would not be valid. Anybody's translations say true? Yes. Okay. That's fine. We're not, don't burn your Bible on the way out of here. But just remember, it's, like, it, ah, it's valid is what he's saying but someone else is testifying about me. I assure you that everything he says about me is true. In fact, you sent investigators to listen to John the Baptist, that's witness number one, and his testimony about me was true, valid. Of course, I have no need for human witnesses, but I say these things so that you might be saved. See the grace there? He's not just beating up on people, he's trying to rescue people. John was like a burning and uh, shining lamp, and you were excited for a while about his message. But I have a greater witness than John. Here's two more. My teachings and my miracles. The Father gave me these works to accomplish, and they prove he sent me. And the Father who sent me has testified about me himself. You have never heard his voice or seen him face to face. And you do not have his message in your hearts because you do not believe me the one he sent to you. You search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life. But the scriptures point to me. Yet you refuse to come to me to receive this life. Your approval means nothing to me because I know you don't have God's love within you. For I have come to you in my Father's name, and you have rejected me. Yet if others come in their own name, you gladly welcome them. No wonder you can't believe, for you gladly honor each other, but you don't care about the honor that comes from the one who alone is God. Yet it isn't I who will accuse you before the Father. Moses will accuse you. Yes, Moses, in whom you've put your hopes. If you really believe Moses... You would believe me because he wrote about me. But since you don't believe what he wrote, how will you believe what I say? Let's pray and ask for help. God, God, we all get tangled up in people-pleasing. God, we believe the promises that it tells us, the threats. Don't do that. Don't say that. Come across nice. God, can you help us to see the alternative? Can you help us to see what it was that motivated Jesus to be able to stand up in the midst of great persecution and be authentic? God, I pray that we would follow our rabbi and that we would love you authentically from the hearts you gave us. ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. You can have a seat. So what's this alternative that Jesus presents to people-pleasing? How do we be people who don't say, I'm not going to be involved in people-pleasing because I'm leaving everybody. I'm headed off on my own. This is easier. Y'all are slowing me down. Bye-bye. How do we stay relationally engaged while acknowledging, man, there's always a temptation when we get together, we're going to struggle with this people-pleasing thing. How do we do that? Well, it's in verse 42. It comes negatively, but, but Jesus says, attachment does what people-pleasing cannot Listen again in verse 41. Your approval means nothing to me because I know you don't have God's love within you. God's love, literally, in your heart, in your being. You're afraid and you're operating out of that fear. I see the fear. I'm not going to get entangled in the fear because I know I have God's love in my heart. That is not a willpower spirituality, that's a totally different value system. We value people's approval because of the promises it makes, because we can't imagine alternatives. What am I gonna do if my mom stops calling me? What am I gonna do if these friends I don't really like being with anymore because they just complain about everything? What what, What if I say, hey, I'm done doing this? What's gonna happen? We don't know, and not knowing is fine, But then fear kicks in, and we start doing what is called catastrophizing. Well, if I stand up at Thanksgiving and if I say, Yeah, I'm not going to talk bad about the Smiths anymore. We get it. They're a mess. We're awesome. I just don't want to do that anymore. I want to navigate Thanksgiving differently. It's going to be painful. It's going to be hard, and willpower won't get us through that, but you know what will? Knowing that we're loved and valuing that love over the approval of others. Now that is easier said than done. We are learning a new way to navigate the world. People-pleasing has served us all these years. It's kept us out of trouble, We've been good boys and girls, we just kept our heads down. Nobody's mad at us. We're good. Now you're telling me to make a fuss? Maybe. I don't I don't know what not being a people pleaser might look like in your specific situations. But I do know that when the initial peer of the fear when it hits us of stepping outside the lines of expectations, I know Jesus is still with us. It's absolutely crazy. We just miss the weight of what Jesus said. In first century Judaism, when you had a trial, you called witnesses and those witnesses weren't meant to like do what witnesses do in in this court, like in Judge Judy. You know, like Judge Judy, when you call a witness, the witness proves what you're saying, right? So yes, off, you know, yes judge, they did buy that gum. They didn't steal it because we have the receipts. And then we have videotape of them not buying the gum. In a world before receipts and before cameras, that wasn't how court worked. Court worked like this. You call a witness who everyone thinks is trustworthy. Right? So in the community, you're like, hey, this elder over here, they're going to say, yeah, I have character. You know me. I've been a leader in this community and that person is telling the truth. That's what it means to have your witness be valid. Jesus explicitly says, I am not concerned about human witnesses. Who does he call as his witness? God! Okay, that is upping the ante a lot. Jesus is putting all his poker chips on the table. What he's doing is called taking an oath. In first century Judaism, as Judaism today, we don't take oaths lightly. It's a very big deal. Here's what Jesus would have been saying at that time to the religious leaders. He says this. If I'm not telling the truth, I call God as my witness that I am telling the truth. And may he strike me down if I'm lying. I am God. And you're like, cool. Until... You read the rest of the Gospel of John. What happens to Jesus? He dies. Ah! Now, do you understand why all his disciples ran? Like, we're like, geez, those poor idiots. Why did they do that? Don't they just keep reading? It's like Jesus himself said, I'm calling God as my witness. I am God incarnate. All right? And if I'm not telling the truth, may God strike me down. And then they see him on a cross and they're like, ah. Whoa. Think about people-pleasing then, right? Where's people-pleasing going to get you? You're switching teams. Like, hey, religious leaders! <laughs> Sorry about that. Just miscalculated that a little bit. Welcome back. All right, no. What's Jesus doing? He's protecting the little guy. He's saying... This, this, we're living disconnected from God. We like each other. We, we're so, like, listen, read it again. It's really scary, actually, when you stop and think about it. It's, it says this in um, verse 43. For I have come to you in my Father's name, and you've rejected me. Yet if others come in their own name, you gladly welcome them. This is a group of people who like being together. Right? You can't always say that about church. It's like, well, we come because we have to. It beats the alternative being scared. All right, so there's people that like being together. That's good. What else do they do? Look at verse 39. You search the scriptures. This is a group of people that like being together and who study their Bibles relentlessly. Search the scriptures it does not sound like they, oh, struggled to wake up on Wednesday, but I got it on Thursday. No, these people are like just digging into their Bibles. What's happening? Jesus is standing up. To a group of people, say, who like being together and who search the scripture saying, you're missing the point. You're missing the point. You're not aware of God's presence. Wow. And that kills him. But he doesn't stay dead. And that gets us back to one of the witnesses. Jesus' miracles. We do not believe that the New Testament belittles people who need evidence, right? It's wild to believe, like, hey, uh, do you believe that 2,000 years ago God was just walking around among us and then he died but then he came back to, to life? Do you want to believe that in like 30 seconds to give your life to him? Like, um, I mean, I'm a curious person, but I kind of need some evidence to go with that. The Bible never belittles that. Jesus calls on his miracles as proof that he's deeply connected to the Father, and what's the ultimate miracle? Resurrection. There was a study done, it is a study, being done at Harvard University. It's the longest study on human happiness. There's actually somebody from this congregation who is a participant in that study. It's crazy, It's like the coolest thing ever. To me, I don't know, but I think that's awesome. I'm like, wow, it's an 80-year study, it spanned generations, and it's, it's basically all these so- scholars, are like, what makes a person truly happy? Do you know what the two leading scholars who are leading it now say? They say, we like to think human happiness comes from ridding our lives of hard things. These are secular people, like, and we buy into that, right? What's human happiness look like? Well, for a lot of Columbia Missourians, you're in Dustin, Florida, your kids are well-behaved, you're sitting on the beach, you've got no responsibilities, no emails, everything's peaceful, everything's fine. That's the good life. That is actually not the good life. That's the cow. That's running. These secular scholars at Harvard say, actually, the good life is forged out of the very things that make life hard. What can be harder than dying as the Son of God and the only innocent who ever lived? But out of that we see resurrection, which we celebrated today. That's why people come up out of the water, because he didn't stay dead. It's amazing and it's beautiful. Jesus faced it and he faced it all the way. It led to his death. It says as he starts to sermon, from this day on they started persecuting him and they didn't stop till he died. Why? Fear. He is upsetting our equilibrium. That's what people pleasing is all about. You rock the equilibrium. I don't like that. This is terrifying. And it's like really scary too, right? Like, because is it possible you think, can we love the Bible and miss Jesus? Scary. It's very terrifying. They're in churches everywhere. It sounds godly, right? I, I just want more Bible. I do too. Totally do. But we can hide people-pleasing, and religiosity behind Scripture. That's why I think, is it, is it August 23rd or 22nd? Third. Thank you. I'm not crazy. Okay. Sorry. No, no. I just trust your calendar skills more than mine. So I was like, oh, I'm like the worst at calendar. August 23rd. That's why we're starting a class called Read Scripture. Because Jesus points out here, he's like, hey, look, look! it would be insane for us to say, hey, look, there once was a community who liked being together and who loved Scripture, and they missed the point. So you know how we're not going to miss the point? We're going to hate being together, and we're going to hate the Bible. All right. Whew. We're going to not miss the point when we do that. No, no, no. That's crazy. But we want to read the Bible like what Jesus is talking about here, how Moses said, it all leads and points to me. I really believe that. I'm deeply persuaded and passionately committed to that the Bible is a story. It's not a rule book. I was saying that to somebody, and they said, oh, yeah, Bible, basic instructions before leaving earth, B-I-B-L-E, Bible, basic instructions before leaving earth. I was like, no, no. I mean, there are instructions in it, totally, but no, that's not, it's a story. What's the story telling? It's a story about God's presence. Bear with me for a second. The story opens in a garden where God and man dwell together. Presence. Actually says in Genesis 3.8 that God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden in the cool of the day. Most Old Testament scholars believe that verb walked can really only be implied to an embodied person. So before Jesus came, there was an embodied figure in the garden walking with Adam and Eve. Jesus before Jesus came. Revelation 21, how does that end? So the book ends. It starts with presence. We're walking with God. We're dwelling with God. We're living with him in a garden. How does it end? New heavens come down and it says this man is now the dwelling place of God. Whoa. So the book ends talk about it. Maybe the whole story is about this idea of presence, God's relational presence. That's how God actually identifies himself. He calls himself Yahweh. Jesus is claiming to be Yahweh. Moses meets Yahweh in Exodus 3. What happens in Exodus 3? A burning bush shows up. And from that burning bush, Yahweh says, don't be afraid. I am with you. He says that in Exodus 3.14. Then later, Moses says, well, hey, when I go to the Israelites, who do I tell them is with me? And God says, I am with you. And a lot of scholars wrongly believe, oh, I am just means I am that I am. What does that mean? Like that's If we just stop to think about that for a second, like, I am that I am. Like, we knew that you were without, what? I am is actually a link back to the sentence that he first spoke to Moses. I am with you. So what's God's name? His name is I am, which I believe is short for I am with you. He identifies himself as being a God of presence. Matthew's gospel, which we're not looking at, starts by Jesus saying, hey, you need to call his name Jesus. You need to call Jesus' name Emmanuel. What does that mean? God with us. How does the book of Matthew end? Jesus says to his disciples, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is a story all about presence. We live in an unbelievably isolated society. This might be good news. God likes us. He wants to be with us. And he entered human history to do that. It's like C.S. Lewis talks about this in mere Christianity. People, you know, when the first cosmonaut went up to space, what did he famously say? I don't see God. Everybody panicked. Ah, we didn't see God. There's no God. Lewis said, no, 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 no. That's like an an actor at the Globe Theater going up to the attic of the Globe Theater and saying, I don't see Shakespeare. We can only see Shakespeare if he writes himself into the story. And God has written himself into our story. That's why if we're, it was just to be like a revolving circle, it would be read scripture, know thyself. And that is why we're doing these two classes starting August 23rd. Read scripture, know your story. There is power in telling our stories. Just you guys feel it this morning? Man, it was beautiful hearing these, these testimonies of people meeting God. An emerging generation that wants to be with God. It's Beautiful. Beautiful. When we don't tell our stories, they lose their meaning. It's hard to tell your story when you're afraid. It's hard to be authentic when authenticity looks like rejection. But it doesn't. That's not us. It's not us. That's people who don't have the love of God in their heart. We have to relate to each other based on fear. We get to be authentic. And we can't control the fruit. I have no idea what's going to happen when you stand up and set boundaries. Some people might respect you. Some people might move away from you. Some people might be disgusted by you. I don't know. But I do know that attachment love can get us through anything. And I got to experience that this week. My best friend's father died later, uh, late last week. Now I've sat with a lot of people through grief and the nice thing is when they don't know me as well as my best friend knows me, I can kind of go through like the Rolodex of things you say, but when your best friend knows you, it's like here we go. How do I sit and navigate with this? And you know, does Craig struggle with people-pleasing? Yes. So that the day his father died, I get a text. And it's a text thread that I'm on. It's so I'm a pastor, my best friends a pastor, and there's also a priest in this text. It sounds like a joke, but it's just text thread I'm on. And so the priest sends back the best reply ever. I mean it was like instant. Like I love you. We're crying for you. I'm like, "Oh my gosh. Jeff, what the heck? What am I supposed to say now?" Like, now I'm going to look like I'm just like piggybacking off Jeff or like I, I and People pleasing. So I call. I don't know what to say. My dad's alive. So I call and just tears. I ugly cry. He's just, he's in it. He's hurting. And I don't know where the conversation's going. I don't know what's happening, but I'm just in it with him. It's really hard. He's saying things like, I'm never going to hear his voice again. Man, I wish I had just, wish I had said this. I'm just with him. And then attachment. Love boils up. My friend, who had just lost his father, learned a few hours after his dad passed that his dad coffee cups, coffee cans, like what is it, like chock full of nuts or folders, all those cans hidden around the house with cash in them. And he had those big five-gallon jugs full of change because he was saving for his granddaughter's wedding dresses. So my friend's daughter's We're sitting through grief and grief has its own agenda and we're facing the storm and That doesn't make it easy. That doesn't make it not storming But you you feel an anchor in the storm Even in secret He was loving us. I Don't know what happens when we say let's not be people pleasers as a group. It's not who we are Let's step out, but I do know there's an anchor and the anchor holds And I know it's painful and storms are real. Hard things are hard. But there is a love which says over all of us who believe, it says neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come can rock that love. He's got us. We're safe. Regardless of what people think. Father in heaven, help us to believe. We believe, help our unbelief. This podcast is part of the ministry of Compass Church in Columbia, Missouri. For more information, please check out compasscfc.com.